So we're, we're in this series looking at uh, some of the Jewish festivals that Yahweh God gave to Israel as a part of the Sinai Covenant. And there, there are seven ones that are mentioned in the Torah we've been pointing out, and then there are two more that appear. Um, one in, it's still biblical, it's in the Bible, but it's not in the Torah, it's not the first five books. And then there's another one that we looked at last week, Hanukkah, that, that comes during the intertestamental period, or, or, the, or the second temple Era and so each week we've we've been looking at those. What one thought I, I or a question I might just address real quickly because I've I've had many conversations with with some of you as we're talking about these and one question that that often comes up is so should we as Christians celebrate these? Um, it's a it's a great question. A lot of you've kind of you know said so. Are you saying this is like you know kind of an imperative? Um, l- let me try to answer that. A, in a nuanced way before we jump into tonight's. Should we celebrate these as in ought we, meaning like it's an imperative? No. There's there's no moral imperative or command for believers to follow or to celebrate these festivals. These festivals were part and parcel of the Sinai Covenant. So it's exclusive to the Sinai Covenant. Second question, Can we, or as I correct my kids, may we, may we celebrate these? Um, It depends. First question is, why are you doing it? If it has anything to do with, well, God would be more pleased with me, you're going back to the moral imperative one, like you ought to. God would be happier. Again, it's it's sort of like it's a mini commander. It's like it's getting closer to that. No, that's the wrong reason to. If um, if you're saying, well, I. I want to get in better touch with, you know, the Hebrew roots and Jewish roots of scripture, the stories and that sort of thing, or, you know, the idea of communicating to our Jewish friends and neighbors, hey, your story ultimately ends here with Jesus, using it as a way to point to it. Yeah, sure, that's great. <laughs> one, one last caveat, <clears throat> should, we, should you celebrate all of them? And that's where I would give a very specific no. (laughs) And you probably need to think through, well, what do you mean no? Well, here's what I mean. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement is about creating sacred space or cleansing sacred space so that I can enter and be close to God. Now, for the Christian, is, is it even right for us to do that? Absolutely not. In fact, the the author of the book of Hebrews warns and says, the minute you try to think there's one thing you can do as sort of a sacrifice to give you access, he says, you're saying Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough. And he actually says, you're actually trampling it under your feet. You're treating the, the, the cross of Christ, his sacrifice, as something that you walk on like garbage. So that's, it would be sort of like this. Think of it this way. Um, it would be like saying, well, now that I'm married, can my wife and I have an engagement party? And you'd go, well, I don't think you understand what marriage is, Brent, <laughs> right? That's what I mean. These things, and this is what the author of the book of Hebrews points at, is just, these things, new moon festivals and Sabbaths, all these things, he said, wonderful, there's great wisdom to it. They played a deeply functional role to Israel. But he said they were signs and markers like a road sign points beyond itself to something up ahead, 
these were signs pointing beyond themselves to, to something that God was actively doing. Does that make sense? So again, we're, we're talking about these because I think they're deeply important. I, I, I think they give us um, a greater sense of what's going on in God's epic narrative, what's happening here. And it ultimately, and this is, this is one of the things that um, if, if you've been around Wednesday night community for a while, I, I think you've probably picked up on this is one of our core purposes as a part of doing these studies, you know, when we come together, it's, it's that we would um, better be able to understand the big story of Scripture. We, we would start to be able to connect dots. You know what I mean by that? Like we kind of go, oh, like for me, I remember when I was a kid, my, my mom sewed me this, um, it was a, a, not a blanket, a, a comforter. And she had cut out um, each little kind of square was a different Bible story. And I could just picture it. There was you no know, Daniel in the lion's den. And then there was like the David and Goliath one. And there was Jonah and the fish. And there were all of these patches on this, on this blanket that I had. <clears throat> and I, I could tell you every one of those, if you were to say, tell me about that square, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. That's when this happens. I loved them. But my faith was kind of like that. What is scripture, Brent? Well, there's, there's the David and there's the Daniel and there's the Jonah. And the, you, you know what I mean by that? But it wasn't this unified picture. I kind of, my faith was like a patchwork quilt. <laughs> I knew a lot of the stories. I wasn't necessarily able to connect the dots between the stories. I didn't necessarily see what are the themes that, that, that are being woven through almost all of these stories. And, and, and it's this unified grand narrative that I'm actually being invited into that actually says something about my life. So that's, that's one of these goals that we have is that as we dig into a story, we don't just do that. We go, let's kind of step back and see, ask questions like, how does this fit in? And so we have to do hard work. We have to do some history stuff. We have to think and really engage. And so that's true with all of this series. As, as we looked at Sabbath, we've looked at the idea of like, why? What role did that play in Israel's life? What, what role does having rhythms play in our own devotional life with God, the day of atonement, and, and seeing this whole concept of what is it that allows me to get back into Eden, so to speak, meaning God's presence? What's involved in that, the feast of dedication or Hanukkah, and, and seeing how that gave great shape to all the people who came after it, all these characters in the New Testament, the way they respond to situations and their expectations, they were shaped by these events that took place. And so tonight what we're going to do is turn our attention to the, uh, the festival of Purim. Or as I say in Hebrew, Purim. Purim, let me, let me read for you. I've done this a, a few of our nights. I just want to read you a brief um, entry from the Dictionary of the Old Testament Wisdom, Poetry, and Writings. Short description of what Purim is. Purim is a Jewish festival dating from the pre-Christian time. So that would be the Second Temple era is what we're meaning after the First Temple was destroyed and um, until the New Testament times. Originally celebrated on the 14th and 15th of Adar. That falls in our, remember that kind of calendar I gave you? That falls in our like February, March, like right in between there is about where that is. Though it came to entail certain practices on the 13th as well. 
The celebration of Purim commemorates the victory, and these are two characters we're going to be talking about tonight, Esther and Mordecai, Esther and Mordecai, their victory over Haman. He's, he's going to be one of the key villains in this account. And the resulting conquest of the Jews over their enemies. It's a minor festival within the Jewish liturgical year, um, meaning that work is permitted on it. Remember a number of these festivals, they're, you know, they're said like this is a sacred day, so you kind of have, you treat it as almost a Sabbath. There's no work on it, or maybe it's one of these pilgrimage festivals where you actually go somewhere. This is not one of those, so it's a minor festival in that way. A couple things about the book of Esther that are just sort of of interest. It is one of only two books in the Bible that does not mention God. God appears nowhere in the book. No one has ever said to pray in the book to God. The other book is Song of Songs, if you're interested. Now, if you think, well, why is that? What's going on? It's actually really interesting, but we're going to come back to that at the very <clears throat> end. It's only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman, Esther, and then, you know, the other one is Ruth. Um, Purim, which uh, the book of Esther has written partially its purpose just to explain uh, the origins of the holiday, but Purim, it's the only, and I said this early, it's the only biblical feast that's not in the Torah, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch. Now, s some debate the identity of who the king is, depending on what translation of the Bible you open up. Um, it, it might say um, Xerxes. That's what the Greeks called this guy. So sometimes the Greek name for him is used. Sometimes his, um, um, his, his own name and his own tongue is used. Um, and something that we, we talk about a lot on Wednesday nights as we're talking about culture and understanding things is honor and shame. You've, you've heard me talk a lot about that. Read this sometime with that filter, and you'll see it's constantly, everything that's happening to a person has to do with being honored or being shamed, being elevated, you know, doing something, something. The whole story, it's definitely, it gives you a very good picture of what an honor-shame culture is like. Now, in the, in, in the modern period, as you can imagine, so this is essentially about it, if you, if you know the story, and we'll jump into it, this is about an attempt by one guy to, to commit genocide on the Hebrew people throughout the entire world. And as you can imagine, a, um, a, uh, a post-World War II, post-Holocaust account this story takes on kind of new meaning, you know what I mean by that? It's, um, it, it, it has amazing parallels. Uh, this guy that we're gonna come across, Haman, has amazing parallels to Hitler that people will point out. And so it's, it's almost this, oh, it used to just be a fable and a story. Now I know someone who, who this, the story went further on. So it's something that is experienced a little differently. Um, over the years, this celebration has changed like dramatically. For those of you guys who went to Israel with us, you, I'm trying to, I don't remember which trip it was. Um, they were celebrating Purim one time when we were over there. So it must've been the March trip. Um, and if, if, you were, if you remember anything about it, um, we went down to the uh, Market Street, and it's like Mardi Gras meets Drunk Halloween. I mean, it's insane. It's so weird. I remember when I first saw kind of the you know, modern practice, and if you go to Tel Aviv once a year on Purim, they have this 
It's a carnival. It's a, it's a parade. And it's, it's so strange. It's, it's so odd because it's, it's reveling in everything that's like not kosher, so to speak, like not good. And it's so weird. And over, over this modern era, things have, things have happened. There, there was a fourth century um, scholar, Jewish scholar, who said, and you, you might kind of see some of these connections. You might just kind of scratch your head and go, that's weird. Yeah, it is kind of weird. They said things like, um, <clears throat> this is the one day that you need to become intoxicated on. In fact, the scholar said, you need to become so intoxicated that you can't tell the difference between two sentences. One of them is Mordecai is good and Haman is bad, which those are the two characters. Basically, you get so drunk that you don't even know the difference between those two statements. And Jews always say that, you know, oh, yes, you know, must get you know, drunk so you don't even know the difference between, you know, the two statements. Um, it, it became a day of, because the whole story, it's about reversals. It's about turning st structures of society, structures of power on their head. So they would say things like, it's the one day if you're in Talmud class that you can make fun of your Talmud teacher because you're supposed to give them respect. Well, it's turned on its head. You can be completely disrespectful to your talented teacher. <laughs> or <clears throat> it's, it's the one day of the week that, that you can, I mean, basically just do anything. It's like, a, what's that movie, Purge? I've, I've never seen the movie, but from what I understand, the movie is like, it's the one day, like, there's no laws. Like, go kill whoever you, do whatever you want. It's not that extreme, but it's that idea of it's the one day a year. This is what it's turned into. It wasn't traditionally where almost anything is allowed. Even um, Deuteronomy 25, um, a man dressing like a woman is, is disallowed, cross-dressing. Um, and you, we have a 15th century rabbinic scholar who says, on Purim, you can cross-dress. <laughs> so it's like anything goes, basically everything is out the window. So if you ever see it celebrated today, you won't think that whole lot about Esther, probably. You probably won't think much about Esther and Mordecai. And so we'll look at how, how, how the word comes about, Purim and all that sort of thing. The, um, the different characters, there are four main characters. And, and try to get these four in your mind because they play key roles. The first one is Mordecai. Uh, <clears throat> Mordecai is he's a Jewish man. Um, his, his uncle uh, has died and the wife too, but they had a little girl named Esther. She's also Jewish. And so Mordecai has adopted Esther as like his own daughter. So Mordecai and Esther are, are the two Jewish key figures in the story. And then there's the king of Persia. Um, the, again, you'll see him as uh, different names in there, but the, we'll just call him the king of Persia. King of Persia is a guy that we're, we're going to see. He's... Um, He's, he's arrogant, he's, he's boastful, he's, he's pretty narcissistic. He, it's mostly about showing everyone how awesome he is. But the author also shows he's a guy who is easily manipulated. Like he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't act on his own principles. He acts on what the people around him want him to do. So he's very easily you know, manipulated in the story. And then there's the real bad guy, and that's Haman. Haman is this truly evil, wicked figure. Okay, so before we get into the story, here's what I do. This is sort of the part of like the history part. Are you, can you like track with me for a few minutes on some like background stuff that I think will help you read the story differently, maybe than you ever have before. <clears throat> so here's what I want to do. I want to jump to um, a couple different passages. 
Here's what I want us to see. Um, this is Genesis. Can you see that okay? Does it need to be larger? That's right. <clears throat> Let's go all the way back to the beginning. We go to the garden itself. This is humanity's fall, but we're also introduced to this spiritual sort of divine rebel in the garden as well, this serpent um, being. And there's, there's this fall, this deceit, and this, this divine rebel, who we know basically used to be one of the members of God's divine council, is now in rebellion against him, and he's now tripped up the human family to also be in rebellion. And what God says to this divine rebel is the statement that you see here in 315. I will put enmity, this is a judgment on him, but he's also saying this is how the future is going to move forward in my world. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, it's seed, it's just the word seed there, and her seed. He, meaning the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. That's a mortal wound. Head wounds are mortal wounds. And you shall bruise his heel. Now, biblical theologians will often refer to this passage as the proto-evangelion. Proto means first, like the first one. Evangelion, think of the word gospel, evangel. It's the first statement of the gospel. It's vague. <laughs> what is, who's, who's the seed? How is that going to happen? It's the, it's the proto-evangelion. It's the first statement of what the gospel is, that, that God is going to somehow, all we know is it's through the seed of the human family, is going to conquer this divine rebel who is against. So there's going to be enmity. Are you with me on that? There will be, there will always be enmity between these two. <clears throat> Let's jump over to um, Genesis chapter 15, just 15 chapters later. This is where God picks out, because God has disinherited the nations after Babel. He said, that's what you want? You want to run after other gods? Fine, I'm done with you. He disinherits them. But immediately after that, it says he picks out one man from among them. And he says, from this one man, Abram, I'm going to create a new humanity, and it's going to be supernatural. It's like new creation, because they're old and they can't have them on their own. And this is Abram. And what he tells him in chapter 15, I won't read through the whole thing, but you can see it down there at the bottom. <clears throat> he speaks of your son, your, your seed. Your, remember that seed that was talked about way back there? It's going to be through you. All we knew was Eve's, but now, we, now it's more narrowed down to this guy, Abram, and we find out later his wife, Sarah. So it's going to be through you that the seed is going to come. And remember, there's, there's going to be enmity between that seed and whatever the divine you know, rebel is or the, the powers of darkness, whatever they might be. But there's this supernatural creation of a new humanity. Um, <clears throat> we jump over to that seed turns into a massive group of people, right? Israel. We've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember, Joseph goes to Egypt, and he gets raised to the highest level of position and authority there. But we learn later on, it says, one day a pharaoh came along in charge who didn't know Joseph, didn't remember that. And his, his intent was to wipe out the seed, all of these Israelites. And so what does Pharaoh do to little children when they're born? What does he tell the, the nursemaids when they're birthed? 
says, throw the boys into the Nile because he's going to get rid of the seed. And then what you realize is, of course, one of those little boys is Moses and God uses him to come and have this battle. But what you realize is it's not a battle of Moses and Pharaoh. It's a battle of the gods. It's a battle of Yahweh against the gods of Egypt. These divine beings who, who are in rebellion against the, the all high God, Yahweh. So that's what all the plagues are about. <clears throat> who's, who's stronger? What's going to happen here? So there's, there's, another, there's another attempt to wipe out the seed because then there's no hope. There's no gospel. There's no end game. It's just chaos. And so uh, let's jump over to, um, oh, I'll just read this passage here. So God delivers Israel from Egypt. And do you remember where he takes them immediately? Where does he want them to go? To Sinai. He wants them to go to Sinai. That's, that's his, his pre- they're going to meet his presence there. So they're on their way. They've been freed from the gods of Egypt and the people who the gods were manipulating, like Pharaoh and others. And they're on their way to Sinai. <clears throat> and on their way, as, as they're first going, um, they get attacked by a people group called the, well, the, the guy who was sort of the, the head of it is Amalek. And Amalek is, remember um, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob and Esau? This is Esau's grandkid through a concubine. So he probably knows about the promise through this family. It's, it's very possible. But Amalek moves against to attack them. And there's, I don't have time to get into it, but there's all these, like in the book of Numbers, when it talks about the um, Amalekites, it talks about these dark spiritual forces um, that, that, that are a part of the people. So if, again, we don't have time to jump into all of it, but what's happening is the um, Amalekites are coming to, to wipe them out. And so we read this in Exodus 17, 8. <clears throat> it says, then Amalek, and again, this means him and the whole people group, his family, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses says to Joshua, they're trekking through the desert, choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill. You probably remember this story. This is one of those little patchwork quilts, maybe in your, in your faith. Uh, with a staff, with the staff of God in my hand. This is the staff that, remember, he threw down on the ground and it, you know, it budded and all that sort of thing. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israelites prevailed. So he's holding up the, the staff. Israelite, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek, this guy who attacked them, and his people with the sword. Now listen to this. This is interesting. This is getting into some of the dark spiritual forces there. He says, Then the Lord, Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua that I utterly blot out, listen to this, I utterly blot out the memory 
of Amalek under the heavens. And Moses, uh, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And this is this, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, he's not saying the Amaleks are going to live forever. What he's saying is the dark forces that empower these nations that are behind them will forever be, and it's, it's exhibited first after they leave Egypt, through Amalek. That's where it's seen, but he's referring back to the Genesis 3 thing, right? There will be enmity between these seeds. This is the seed of the divine rebel, and this is the, the seed of Yahweh's people. <clears throat> okay, last one. And again, you'll prob probably know this one as well. <clears throat> Let me go up here a little bit. Fast forward, Israel gets into the land, they take possession of it, and they want a king. Do you remember the king they want? Saul. They want King Saul, right? He's this tall guy. He, they said, we want to be like all the other nations. Not something you want to say to Yahweh who says, I don't want you to be like all the other nations. They said, we want to be like all the other nations. And they always have a king and he's usually this big tall guy. <clears throat> That's what we want. And so they, they get Saul as king. And right away we see all, even though outwardly Saul's like, seems to be, have his stuff all together, there are cracks in his character, deep cracks. And this is one of them. Samuel is a prophet. He's the mouthpiece of God to the king, to King Saul. And we read this in 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel, the prophet, said to, the, said to Saul, the king, Yahweh sent me to anoint you over his people Israel. So he's just brand new in, the, in, his, in his role as king. Now, therefore, because I'm going to anoint you as you're going to be king. Listen. Listen to the words of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh of hosts says. I have noted that who? Amalek. I have noted, that Amalek, uh, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. And what we read about, you can read about numbers and some other places. Basically what Amalek did is he, he targeted the weakest, the people who were furthest back in line, the elderly, the, the children, the young, the women, the injured, targeted them first and started killing them off. But again, it's not just a people group. There are dark spiritual forces behind this. <clears throat> he says, now go and strike Amalek um, and devote to destruction. It's interesting. There's a, um, there's a Hebrew word, harem, and harem is only used... It's this idea of basically you wipe them out, but it's used of certain people in the groups that the way they saw it, and again, we, sorry, just like touching on the stuff, we don't have time to get into a lot of it, basically goes back to when the sons of God rebelled and they tried to start their own people group in Genesis 6, 1 through 5. And it's those people, these are the giant clans. This is why giants play such a significant role in the account going on and on. And so he says, I want you to harem them. You, you devote them for destruction because it's not just people you're dealing with here. There are darker evil forces and I'm wiping that out because their goal is to destroy 
the seed of Israel. So he says, devote them to destruction. And then he goes on and says, basically leave nothing alive, no animals, nothing. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them to Telem, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, this is another group of people who are kind of mixed in with him. This is why you know it's not just, you know, kill everyone. This is a group of people who are there too. And he says to them, um, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. You know, I, I don't want you to get mixed up. Can't necessarily tell people apart. You guys go. And of course, the reason for that is you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hifla as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took, now write this name down or store it in your mind, you're going to need it in a couple minutes. <clears throat> he took Agag. And who was Agag? He's king of the Amalekites. He took Agag, and what's the word after Amalekites? He took them alive. This is one of the ones that, who, who, it's harem. He, he's, he's devoted to Yahweh for destruction. <clears throat> and devoted, um, it took him alive, devoted to destruction, all the people with the edge of the sword. <clears throat> but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the fattened calves, the best of the lambs, all that was good, they kept for themselves and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised, all the junk, all the worthless stuff you wouldn't want anyway, <clears throat> worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now, what's interesting is it says the word of the Lord came to Samuel and he says, man, you know what? I have regret that he is in this role. But then he says, I refuse to live with regret. So I'm changing it basically. And you go down later on in the story, and um, Samuel comes to him and asks the question. He says, um, let's hear, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul kind of tries to go back and forth. He justifies it. He's like, well, I, I didn't do, really do that. And then he pushes further. And then finally he goes, the people were just demanding it. I had to give the people what they wanted. So he, he kind of does the shift, you know, blame thing here. And then there's this really tragic sort of scenario where he says, well, God has rejected you as king and God is going to take away your kingdom and give it to one of your neighbors. And Samuel, the prophet turns to leave and it says, Saul reached out to stop him and grabbed his robe and his robe tore. And then the prophet turns around and says, and, and then he uses it like as, as a little mini parable. He says, God has torn the kingdom from your hands and he's going to give it to <clears throat> that neighbor of yours. Okay, so two key people that we end with, Saul, right? Um, anyone, it didn't say in here, anyone know what tribe he was from? Benjamin, okay? Store this away. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, uh, Saul's father is Kish. Um, what do we learn about Agag, the Amalekites? There's this dark evil force. They are set on the destruction of the people of Israel. So here's what I want to go to. 
This is jumping ahead. I'm going to introduce you to these characters before we get into the story. Look at the first guy up there. Is that large enough? You see it? <clears throat> now, there was a Jew from Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of, and he goes back how far? The son of Kish. Oh, I know another guy who had a father named Kish. And he was um, from the tribe of what? Okay, the author wants you to think of someone. Who should you be thinking of? Saul, King Saul. King Saul's father's name was Kish. He was a Benjamite. Now let's <clears throat> jump down. The, the other character that we're going to interact with is Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the what? Agagite. What does that name sound like? Who was the, who was the king of the group? Agag. Agagite. He's trying to, Agagite isn't necessarily a people group. He's trying to make the reader so clearly see this is that match that never happened. The, the Amalekites, who again, there's all of this deep story with them. We could spend the whole hour just on that. And the king, Agag, the author is setting you up to see this is not just a little patchwork quilt in, in, in the blanket. This is the continuation of the story that began in Genesis 3. And we've had touch points all along of what God is doing with his people and that the seed is constantly in danger of being wiped out by these divine rebel forces that are set on its destruction. So here's what I want to do. Okay, that's, that's the setup. Uh, this is not just sort of a disconnected, random story. This is part of this big narrative. So we get to Esther, and I want to read for you Esther 1, 1 through 9. It sets up the story, and then I'm just going to like paraphrase the story and go through it and see where it leads us. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, um, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. So people on the payroll, basically. The army of Persia and the Medes and the nobles and the governors and uh, of the provinces were before him. He showed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180, six months, <laughs> okay? Um, and when these days were completed, the king gave all of the people present in Susa. So now he's inviting not just the people on the payroll, he's saying, you know, the people in my, in my town, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days <clears throat> in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, uh, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold. And he just goes on and on. It's opulent. It's just over drinks and different kind of gold vessels and all that sort of thing. Um, and he said, oh, and here's, here's the rule about drinking if you're at my party. There's no compulsion, meaning no rules. You drink as much as you want. For the king had given orders to all the staff as each man desired. And then it says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king. 
<clears throat> now here's, here's basically what happens. Um, King Xerxes has this insane feast, as you can see there, um, I think it's just on the next line there. Um, he says, he gets this idea, he gets all hammered, and uh, you know, he's been drinking for seven days, and then he says, hey, go get the queen. See, he's been showing off all of his stuff, and what's the last piece of his stuff he wants to show off? <clears throat> his queen. He's like, hey, you want to see my hot wife? <clears throat> and you know, she's saying, let's see, do I want to be prated a, a, a bunch of you know, drunk guys that have been drinking for seven days? Nah, no thanks. She says no, amazingly, not interested. He gets very upset. He has his, his guys around him say, hey, this is bad. If this gets out, think about what all the other wives are going to do. Next time they're told to do something, they're going to say, Vashti didn't do it to the king. Why should we do it? And he's like, this is really bad. Okay, I will become very unpopular. So he actually makes a decree that, that all men should be the masters of their home. Wonderful thing, right? wonder how that worked out. Um, and then, and then some of his other men say, you know what, you need to get rid of her. And so he does, he's, he's hammered, he's drunk, he gets rid of her. But then it says, he, he realizes what he had done when you're, when you're not making good decisions and it's the next day and you're like, just got rid of my wife. <laughs> and so he's like, what should I do? And his men, this isn't like the Supreme court people. This is more like his buddies, testosterone filled guy says, um, you know, that show bachelor, the bachelor, that's you. You get to be the bachelor and we'll have all these women come on. We'll get one from every province you have. Remember how many provinces? 127 provinces. We'll get them from every province and the best looking ones. Can you actually imagine a culture which would value having a bunch of women come and a man gets to uh, pick which one he wants? Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so he does this, the, the, they go around. Now Mordecai, his adopted daughter, Esther, is in the town of Susa. She sort of wins that, you know, Miss Susa award kind of thing. So she comes into the, and oh, all of these women are in the harem. They're all in the harem. <laughs> it's just which one will he pick to be the queen? But they're all in. He, he has access to all of them. And so she, she, um, she gets called in. They spend uh, 12 months making them beautiful with oils and makeup, and they have these attendants of 12 months. And then they each come in and get a turn with the king, and then he picks his favorite one. Does that sound wonderful, ladies? And he says he, he, he loved Esther more than any of them. He, he was more impressed with her than any of them. And so he picks her to be his queen. Okay, Pause. There's a, a little side story that happens. Mordecai, who's a part of the king's uh, entourage, but, but he's lower down. He's hanging out by the gates one day, and there are two eunuchs there who work for the king, and they don't like him, and they're planning to kill him. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, the two eunuchs have told me the story about they're going to kill him. You need to tell the king. Tells the king, oh, wonderful, save, they get killed. Story's done, but we'll come back to it. Then it comes back to this. Then we meet this guy named Haman. We go to him, and we're not told why. We just, we're just told the king makes Haman. He, he, he elevates him to the highest position just underneath the king himself, gives him all power in the kingdom. And um, Haman one day is walking out of the gate. Mordecai's there because he's a lower, you know, he's a private or whatever. And everyone, he, he tells everyone, I want everyone to bow down to me when I walk by you. I'm second in command. Everyone does it. 
Mordecai doesn't. For, we don't know the reason. Is it religious? Is it, is it, who knows? Mordecai refuses to bow down. Mordecai the Jew, the one from Benjamin, and the guy who's connected to Agag, right? At the Amalekite. So you're already seeing this. And he finds out he's Jewish. And so what he does is he says, it's, you know what? I don't want to just kill Mordecai. I want to kill all of the seed. I'm going to wipe all the seed out. And so he goes to the king and he kind of makes up a little story. Hey, you know how you're ruling the 127 provinces? There's one people group, they're kind of scattered. They're just a, <clears throat> just a pain in our side. They don't obey. They don't listen. And the king's just like, cool, whatever. I mean, he just doesn't ask, he doesn't even ask who it is. And so he says, yeah, um, you can make a decree. And so the king takes off his ring and gives it to Haman because you need to have the ring to make a decree. And so Haman can do anything he wants. He's got the ring of power. And so he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them killed. And he takes a die, or a poor in Hebrew, and he casts the die to figure out what's the day and what's the month that I'm going to kill. He's making a game out of it. And these two poor, together they're called Purim, or Purim. He's taking chance and saying, I'm in charge of chance, and I will control what happens to the seed of Yahweh. And it turns out it's 11 months later. He gets the 13th of Adar. 11 months, the clock is ticking, and the seed is wiped out because it's from the entire world. It's not just in this one location here. And so <clears throat> Haman and the king have a drunken feast again. You can almost break up the books by how many feasts there are. It's, it's opulent. It's just one feast after another. So <clears throat> um, he, he has this huge feast, all this sort of thing. Um, Mordecai finds out about this decree because he's part of the court. And, he's just, and, he, and he, he, he puts sackcloth and ashes on himself and he sits in front of the gate in sackcloth and ashes, which is basically a protest. You don't do that in front of the kings. So it's, it's, it's risky. Um, he gets the message to the queen, to his cousin inside, and says, this is what's going to happen. You, you need to go to the king and beg him not to do this. She says, you don't understand I'm his wife now, but no one can enter the court unless they've been called for it or it's a death sentence. Unless he raises his golden staff to you that's saying it's okay. And then she says, and worse yet, I haven't seen him in 30 days. He's not too, he's not too hot about his new bride if it's been 30 days and he hasn't called for her. So that's hugely in question there. And then of course he has this great statement to her that we know from the story. And he says, if you don't do it, you th you're not going to be saved. You're, you're, you and your family, you're going to be dead too. And you know what? If you don't, God will, he doesn't say God because God's never used. He says, from another place, salvation will come for our people. But he says, but maybe, maybe you were born for such a time as this. And that's that phrase that resonates with us so much. Maybe, maybe you were born for such a moment as this. And she, she, she thinks about it and she gathers her resolve and says, okay, I'll do it. And then her great response, if I perish, I perish. And so um, what she says, she goes in there, she could die. Um, she steps in, very worried. For whatever reason, he's in a good mood. He's rarely in a good mood. <laughs> he raises his staff, lets her come in, and she says, he says, what do you want? He says, I just want to do one thing for you. Can I throw a banquet for you? I just want to throw a banquet for you tomorrow. She goes, sure, absolutely. Throws a banquet. <clears throat> At the banquet, he's drinking, and he says, um, and you know what? Invite that Haman guy, too. So he's there, big banquet. He goes, what do you want? 
I'll give you, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. What do you want? She says, all I want is for you to let me throw you another banquet tomorrow. She's building up. <laughs> okay. Um, and so the, she says, oh, invite that Haman guy again too. And so the next day, here it comes. Oh, and after the first one, Haman, he, he's raging drunk. He goes walking out. He sees Mordecai again. Mordecai doesn't bow to him, and he's just super ticked off. He goes home, and his wife's like, just build a big old stake and impale the guy in the morning. And he's like, my wife is brilliant. That's what I'm going to do. So he builds this huge stake right outside his house, like 50 feet tall. The next morning, he's going to have Mordecai impaled on it. <clears throat> They've had the second feast, though. Um, he, he goes in and, um, oh, one thing that happens right before that, um, Esther goes to the king and says, um, no, 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 sorry, I'm getting mixed up on, on, on the storyline here, sorry. I, I read through it like multiple times this week, but there's so many different pieces to it. Um, the king goes to bed that night. He can't sleep for whatever reason. He normally can always sleep, but he can't sleep this night. And so he calls to his court and he says, go pick a scroll from all the scrolls we have and read it to me. Pick one. So they go, they pick a scroll and they start reading. Well, they read about, remember the little caveat when Mordecai found out the eunuchs were going to kill him? And so they start reading and they go, yeah, then this guy Mordecai, he found out and he told the king and the king was saved. And the king goes, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. He goes, what, what did we do for that guy? He's like, didn't do anything. He goes, okay. Wakes up the next morning. Haman is coming in to say, you okay if I, if I impale, or I'm going to impale this guy in the stake? And uh, as he walks in, they don't talk yet, and the king just goes, hey, question for you. What should I do for someone who I really want to honor? And Haman is so narcissistic, he's like, well, who would he be talking about but me, <laughs> right? So he goes, uh, give him the, the, the king's robes, put him on the king's horse, give him the king's crown, put him on the horse and walk him through the city and have some official holding the rope saying, this guy's awesome. And so he's like, that's what you should do. And he goes, that's just what I'm going to do. Go get Mordecai, do everything you said. And he's like, oh, this guy wanted to kill. And so he's got to put Mordecai on the horse, walking through town, this guy's awesome sort of thing. So there's, there's this like reversal of everything's going wrong God doesn't seem to be involved anywhere, but everything seems to be turning the other way. So now, now it's the second banquet. This is the second one. I want Haman there. She says, I want uh, you there. They come in, they drink, and he says, what do you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And she just goes, don't let me be murdered. He's like, what are you talking about? You know Mordecai, that guy that you, don't let him be murdered. He said, what are, you, what are you saying? Why would I kill him? Well, because the guy sitting across from you has mandated that I be killed and that Mordecai be killed and all of my people all throughout your nation, that they be killed. And he's been drinking and he's not happy. And he gets up and he walks out and, and Haman is freaking out. And so he runs over there and he's begging her, please, please, please. He walks back in. It looks like he's trying to like molest her. So he's like, oh, you're going to do this right in front of me now? And then he hears about a giant post that was built for Mordecai to be impaled on. And he goes, right now, impale Haman on it. And so the men take him and they have this gruesome death. They impale his body on this 50-foot thing right in front of his home. And then after that, Mordecai and Esther go to the king and they say, we got to reverse this command. And he says, I, I can't. The laws of the Medes and the Persians are such that once that ring of power is impressed, 
You can't change it. You can't reverse it. There's no executive orders to go back on an old executive order. It's enshrined. And so he, he says to them, and they come up with this plan. Basically, they say, well, what, what if we create a new edict that says this? On that date, the 13th of Adar, when anyone attacks the Jews, they can defend themselves. And in fact, they should defend themselves. And anyone who is even planning to do it, the Jews can attack and kill. And so there, this edict goes out, the day comes, and there's this, and then the second day she says, I want all of Haman's adult children killed. It kills them. It's, it's this total reversal. Everything is flipped around. And then together, Esther and Mordecai make a decree their final decree, and it's this, let us celebrate the feast of Purim, the feast of chance, throwing the die <laughs> as though he's in charge of it, and let it be celebrated every single year. And then we read, there's this final little ending piece here that we read that uh, Mordecai was, was placed to the highest position in the kingdom right underneath King Xerxes. And this, this Jew then had this great level of respect. And I said, people, people were in awe of him and revered him the rest of his life. And, and he kept his people safe. <clears throat> One of the questions that we asked early on, it, it's a super cool story. But one of the questions, why is God never mentioned in this story? He's never, ever talked about and see, I would say there, there are a couple things as we think about this. This story, first of all, go forward in your mind. Can you think of another banquet where another guy was impressed by a woman who was dancing? And he said, wow, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. Do you remember that one? Mark chapter 6, verse 21 but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodian's daughter came and danced in the palace, it, 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 it pleased Herod and the guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Another version, he says, up to half of my kingdom. It's, it's the reversal. It's the evil version of it. Because what she says is not save people, save my people. It's I want the head of John the Baptist. What's so fascinating to me about this book, what, what stands out to me, is that amidst the most difficult circumstance, amidst the times, I think this is partially what the author wants, he's inviting us to see. And here's my question to you. How much of your life are events that seem Purim, they seem like chance. They seem like there's no one in charge. <laughs> God doesn't seem really even there. He seems maybe absent, unconcerned, whatever it might be. That's what this account asks us to consider. Is it possible that God is more deeply involved in your life than you could ever imagine? It just so happened that Mordecai heard the two eunuchs. It just so happened the king couldn't sleep the night before Haman was coming in to kill the guy. It just so happened that all these things... And this asks us to reevaluate our own lives, to say, what is God doing in my life? 
Are my eyes wide open? Do I, maybe more importantly, do I really trust him despite the kind of Purim stuff, the chance stuff? It seems like he's not in charge. Will I still trust God? And so I think as we, in a sense, celebrate Purim, it's to realize there is one who holds the die. There is one who is sovereign. There is one who is in charge. And he's so committed to his seed. And as Paul says, for those who believe we are the seed, that's us. He's so committed, he will sacrifice himself. That's how utterly committed this God is. And that's what we celebrate. And that's what we're going to celebrate over these next few moments, is the God who is in charge of the die, the God who is so committed to us, his seed, that he would pour out his own blood, allow his own body to be broken. So over these next few minutes, find a station, grab the elements, hold them at your seat, and after the song, we'll take it together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, that seed, he had a meal with his disciples. And in the middle of the meal, he took the bread, the Passover bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Take it in remembrance. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after the meal, he, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, this is, this is my blood that is it's spilled for you. Let's take the cup. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lengths to which you will go for us, for your family. Thank you that you will never leave us and never forsake us. Thank you that you are involved in our lives more deeply than we ever hoped. Would you give us eyes to see, God, in the darkest of times? Give us eyes to see your fingerprints on our lives. Build faith and trust in us. Thank you, God, that you are faithful when we are faithless. Thank you that you are still good. Would you remind us of that reality? God, we love you so much. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you that you have given us to one another as family. Help us to be responsible to that call and to love one another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.